All right, all right. So once again, good evening. I want to welcome everybody here and all those listening on our podcast channel. Tonight, we're going to be finishing up the Old Testament book of Joshua. Specifically, we're going to be looking at chapters 23 and 24. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to chapter 23. If you don't have your Bibles, no worries. All the verses are going to be on the screen up above my head. Uh, So like we always do, uh, let's jump right in. Let's see what Joshua wants us to know. We're going to start off at Joshua 23, verses 1 to 3. Okay, This is what it says. After a long time had passed, and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am very old. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It is the Lord your God who fought for you. Okay, so what we're seeing here, what's happening is the leader of Israel, who is Joshua, he calls all the elders, the leaders, uh, the chiefs, the people of importance Right? He calls them for a meeting. Joshua, he's, he's getting very old, and they as a nation had been through a lot. Right? They, they'd conquered the promised land. Each tribe has their own portion now of the promised land. Um, and Joshua, being the good leader that he is, he knows his time on earth is coming to a close. He knows he won't be around that much longer. And instead of worrying about himself, trying to make himself... Uh, great or more well-known or worrying about his situation in any way, he doesn't do that. He calls all the leaders together and he makes sure, this is what this is about, that they never forget how they got to where they are right there, right? They can't do this on their own. They didn't do this on their own. They're only here by the grace of God because God was for them. So basically, near his deathbed, before his deathbed, Joshua spends his last days making sure the people never ever forget that God is their God. He's for them, and they belong to him. This has always been about their relationship with God. But Joshua also knows, and we're going to see as we go further through this, that the moment the people start to slip, they turn to the right or turn to the left, there's going to be trouble. Right? So he calls the leader together, all the leaders together, and he looks them each in the eye, the way I'm looking you guys in the eye right now. He looks them in the eye and says, you yourselves, you personally have seen everything the Lord has done. You've seen what he did to all these other nations. The land you're standing, the land we're standing on now, kick some dirt, touch the rocks, we have this because the good Lord brought us here. He's the one that did this, right? So he makes this personal. He wants them to know, like I said, touch the earth, feel it. You can see this with your own eyes. The ground you're standing on, the good Lord gave to us. You know this to be true. And this is good because instead of getting deep, philosophical, right, he's being blunt, he's being tangible, he's making it real, Look around you. Everything we have is because of God, right? The more real it is, the more the chance that people won't forget what God did. Now, as Joshua continues, we're going to see see him get very specific on two things. Number one, he's going to list off specifically what God did for them. Everything. The physical, right? He's going to make it real, right? He's going to talk about how they're blessed. And the second thing he's going to do is he's going to address, he's going to talk about the need for the Israelites to stay close to God. They need to stay with him because there's going to be repercussions if they don't. All right? So let's read what he says. It's in verses 4 to 5. He says, Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea to the west. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you. You will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. 
So Joshua is focusing on the land that God has provided and is going to continue to provide. They had come across the Jordan River as a nation. They drove out a bunch of other nations. And that land has now been physically divided up, and each tribe has gotten their own section. And then Joshua finishes verse 5 with a statement, As the Lord your God has promised you. Right? So he's reminding them of the covenant that they have with God. The covenant that was made between Abraham, where his descendants would have the promised land. The land that they're now standing on. And God would make this happen by his mighty hand if they followed his commands, if they remained close to him. So as I said, Joshua's speech has two parts. One is a reminder of what he just said, of what God did for them. And now he's going to switch to what their responsibility is, what their role is, the stuff they have to do. And like Joshua was specific with what God did, he's going to get very specific on what they have to do. Let's read verses 6 through 8 and then 12, 13. He says, be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. And pay attention to this because this is going to come up again in a little bit. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Seem clear? Crystal clear, right? It's in writing. What are you going to do? Let's read verses 12 and 13. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, remember those things, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your back, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now there is some heavy duty stuff in there. Everybody else pick up on that? That is not like, that's not light stuff, light and fluffy, like cotton candy. That is heavy duty stuff. And I don't know if you guys are watching the news today, but this also relates to a lot of what's going on in the world today. It is. And as we've said, the covenant here between God and the Israelites required them to be faithful to God, to follow his laws. And as we just read, to not intermingle, to not intermarry, not to worship the gods of the people around them. And, God, and Joshua specifically says, if you associate with them, God will no longer go before you. He's not going to drive the nations out, but rather those nations will become snares, traps, whips on your back, thorns in your eyes. And they will do this until you perish from the land that you've been given. This is heavy duty, right? Now, we know from the Old Testament history that the Israelites never did fully drive out the other nations from that land, in the promised land. With Joshua, they took over some of the bigger cities, defeated a lot of the major armies. But each individual tribe was supposed to remove the rest of the people from the land, and they did not do that. They regularly had problems with intermarrying with the other nations, even worshiping their gods. And in one of the more obvious, sad, and dramatic cases of Israel completely ignoring everything we just read, we're going to read a passage from 1 Kings about King Solomon. Now what we're going to read, bear with me here, it's going to be long, but everything we read matters, and it's going to have a lot to do with what we just read. So 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8. And just the first word tells you this is not going to be good. But, but King Solomon married many, what? 
foreign women besides the daughter of Pharaoh. And who was Pharaoh the leader of? Egypt, where they had been slaves. Many foreign women, women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, and Sidonia, along with the Hittite women too. All of them from nations that the Lord had ordered the Israelites, you are not to associate with them and they are not to associate with you because they will will most certainly turn your affections away to follow their gods. Solomon became deeply attached to them by following in love. He had 700 princess wives and 300 Mr. What? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Kidding. That's crazy, I know, but wait, there's more. 700 princess wives, 300 mistresses who turned what? His heart away from the Lord. Because... Uh, because as Solomon grew older, his wives turned his affections away after other gods, and his heart was not fully as devoted to the Lord his God as his father David's heart has been. Solomon pursued Astarte, the Sidonian goddess, Milcom, that detestable Ammonite idol. Solomon practiced what the Lord considered to be evil by not following the Lord as his father David. Later, Solomon even constructed a high place, that's a temple, a place of worship, on the mountain east of Jerusalem that was dedicated to Chemosh, that detestable Moabite idol, and to Molech. And Molech was a god associated with uh, child sacrifice back then, the detestable Ammonite idol. Solomon did this for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and, sa- incense and sacrifice to their own gods. Okay, so hopefully you can see why it was kind of important to read all of that. You can see there's so much wrong with what's going on. It's almost like, this is going to sound facetious, but like a resume of what not to do, right? Don't do this. It's almost like Solomon saw the list of what not to do and confused it with what you're supposed to do. But here's the important thing to consider. Solomon, he was their king. He was their leader. And for him to do that to that degree, he was also giving tacit permission for everybody else to do it. If he can do it to that extent, why not everybody else do it, right? The point here is not specifically to bash Solomon or or anybody else for that matter, but we need, need to understand their capacity to sin, and this relates to us because it's also related to our capacity to sin, to turn away from God, right? A desire to do whatever we want. And you're going to notice this is exactly what Joshua is trying to prevent years beforehand when he's talking about this, right? And along those same lines happens today. One of the more dangerous things we, we can do is we think, well, we're not like that. We're smarter. We know better. We would never do that. Nothing close to that. And the truth is that is false. We're the exact same. We are. We're no different. We fall to temptation the exact same way. We do, we do bad things just the same. And what we're seeing here is direct evidence of why Joshua was being so specific, so repetitive, right? He knew. He knew in his heart they would likely fall away, some of them. Once they got comfortable, once they got complacent, once the urgency of taking the promised land, and, it, it put, you know, it, and once all that passed and now their bellies are full, it's a nice, easy day. Now, now they're going to get involved with other stuff. When there's no more war, now when people have time to let their minds wander, getting into other trouble, you know what I mean? I know it sounds strange, but when there's real danger, it tends to focus people. Even like the nation of Israel today, I don't know if you watch the news, the Israel, nation of Israel has been very fractured politically for a very long time, all kinds of stuff about the judiciary and trying to change the 
uh, constitution, but now this awful thing which just happened, and what happens? The whole nation gets behind. They have one singular focus right now, and that's a lot what was happening. When they were going into the promised land, they had one singular focus. Stay alive, keep moving, take over the city, get the promised land. Well, now they have the promised land. Now they have everything. Now it's easy to go, oh, she's pretty. Who's that? It's a foreign nation, and they start getting into trouble, right? And that's when the real danger happens. So the idea, what Joshua was doing, is reinforcing over and over this idea to stay on mission. And this is one of our points for today. It's important. It's also one of our seven disciplines here, to live on mission. This is vitally important because staying on mission, without being focused in one direction, without having a goal, without having a path, people get into all sorts of trouble. We like to add our own stuff, our own ideas to religion. We like to forget rules. We like to find loopholes. It happens all the time. We find ways to create division and hierarchies. And Jesus, he was really big on fighting this and correcting this. One of the more powerful teachings he gave, a lot of the power, sorry, most of the stuff he talked about was staying on mission. And the Beatitudes, probably one of the biggest calls to stay on mission that he gave. And when people read them, they naturally say, oh, that's beautiful, that's wonderful. And it is, it is. Right, those words are beautiful, but they're actually, it's a call for us to be better Christians, right? Uh, even more to the point, they keep us on missions when most keep us on mission when most people are going to get pulled away. That's really what they are. And the reason I say that is because we don't naturally want to do what the Beatitudes tell us to do. Our nature is about to think is about thinking for ourselves to take care of our own needs, our own wants. You know, store up as much money as much whatever we need, just in case. Don't worry about anybody else. Take care of yourself. Our nature tells us to be aggressive, to get revenge, to pay back, hold on to that anger, right? repay that person that wronged us. Here's a good example. Let's get personal for a sec. Anyone here ever find it hard to forgive sometimes? (laughs) Me too. To let go of that anger sometimes? Anyone here ever get angry? No, you should probably forgive and move on, but don't really want to let it go just yet. Me too. It's almost like hanging on to that anger feels good to a point, right? And in that scenario, this is why it's so hard to forgive. And I want everyone to pay attention about, to this because this is important. When we decide to forgive somebody, someone who has wronged, I mean, some, let's say someone actually, they're wrong. They did it. They're wrong. What we're doing is we're deciding to absorb that pain and that death. That's why forgiveness is hard. What we're doing is consciously saying, I'm not going to make you pay that debt. You did it to me. You caused it. But I'm going to pay that debt. I'm not going to hold you responsible. Even though you did it, I'm going to do that. You see, our nature fights that with everything we are, doesn't it? It's hard. Right? And if someone says, oh, no, no, that's easy, that is not true. That is not true. It is hard to do. No one in their right mind wants to do that. No one's good at that. It's not natural. And here's the key. What does Jesus tell us to do? Forgive. To do that no matter what. 
And here's your thing. How often did he say we're supposed to forgive somebody? Oh, 70 times 7. Here's, here's the way I describe it. Whatever number you have in your head, multiply it times 10. And then do another 10 just to be safe. The point is that exact number doesn't matter. It's just a whole lot more than you ever thought possible that you ever could do. And that number is crazy high. That's the point. Jesus commanded us to be on mission, even in forgiveness. Think, think, here's where, let's relate this to him. Think about how hard it is for us to forgive when we don't want to. Like, I mean, even it's just, it's just, Jesus did that for the world. He didn't cause any of it, and he took it all on, 100% of it, never caused any of it. He died for us, so we didn't have to. And then here's the kicker. He said, you do the same. Follow me. Do what I did. All right? Now, let's get back to the Beatitudes because this all relates. Because in the Beatitudes, Jesus is calling us to do something in our nature fights that we, I mean, again, every, people read that and go, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, but it's hard. Let's talk about it. Matthew 5, 3 to 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. See, Jesus, what Jesus is directing us to do, literally, is to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. That's, we're supposed to do that in all situations. He directs us to be merciful and pure in heart and to make peace. And those are very hard to do in the moment, especially if we're the victim, if it's happening to us. But that's what he's calling us to do. Now notice, test me on this. Look in your Bibles under Matthew 5. There's no little asterisk, little side note that says, do this unless it's happening. We are to be those things all the time, in all scenarios, even if it's happening to us. And if we're being honest, and we should be, those things won't make you rich in this world, will they? They not. They're not even going to make you successful. There's no business schools that have a degree in being meek. right? You're not going to have a business and be successful because you're meek and you're, you're peacemakers. What Jesus is doing is directing us to look beyond ourselves and see the world the way he sees it, the way he and God the Father want it to be. And we can only achieve that. We can only be part of that if we're on mission all the time. Right? If we stay close to Jesus, we follow his path. We need to do that. And the Israelites needed to do that. That's why Joshua is being so specific, so unbending in his commands. He's laying it out there. This is what God did for us, this land that we have. This is what you have to do. This is your part. Now, in the next few verses, uh, verses 14 to 16, Joshua's going to close out his teaching to the, to the leaders. Let's read that, and then we're going to jump into uh, chapter 24. So Joshua 23, verses 14 to 16. And just think about him talking about this to them. This is amazing. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, which means pass away. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. 
But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come true, so he will bring on you all the evil things he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land he's given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he's given you. So the, the reason I wanted to read that part and to read what we did in uh, chapter 20 is so that we're, we should see how blunt, how straightforward, how not vague these commands were, right? Repeatedly, we hear how God fulfills his promises, how God did his part. He did everything he said he would do. And now the only role that people have is to stay close to God. Don't worship the other God. Stay close to God. Follow his commands. There's only one God. Remember, in the whole of chapter 23 is Joshua talking to the elders, the leaders of the people. He's making this crystal clear with the elders, the leaders, the chiefs first. And now we're going to see him do the same thing in chapter 24, but now he's going to do it to the whole nation, to everyone. Right? And instead of going verse by verse in this chapter, we're just going to hit the high points of what he tells them. But what you're going to hear is going to be very similar. You're going to remember the story. It's important. So we're actually going to look at Joshua 24. We're going to skip a bit. Verse 3, 5, 8, and 11. He's quickly going to walk them through the whole story. Verse 3. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him through Canaan and gave him many descendants. It's the beginning of their story, isn't it? Then, then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. That's them being freed from slavery. He said, I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites. Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, but I gave them into your hands. So what Joshua is doing now to the entire nation, he's walking them through step by step. This is your story. This is what God did for you. This is everything, right? Again, it it may sound like uh, overkill and repetitive, but God knows their heart. So does Joshua. They are prone to waver. Right? And what we read with, in Kings with Solomon, what's going to happen in their future. They have a tendency to get pulled to the right or to the left. And even though God did this for them, there's always that risk. They're going to slip. They're going to be, when they get comfortable, when they're well-fed for an expend, expended, extended period of time, they may not remember so much what God did for them. They might, might start thinking, well, we're the ones that actually marched into this land. We're the ones that actually did this. And that's what Joshua, that's what God are afraid of happening. So to give one last solid, unmistakable reminder about who actually got them there, Joshua reminds them in no uncertain terms in verse 13. He's really specific. And look what he says. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now, this is really important, this, 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 where he's going with this. It wasn't just that God went before them and helped them win wars and battles, which he did. Right? They took over the cities. But in addition, he gave them cities, houses, farms, vineyards, things that they did not build. They didn't spend one drop of sweat to build those cities, to plant those vineyards, those houses. 
They were already there. The Israelites simply took them over. So God provided for them in so many other ways than just winning a battle. And just like I said, God knows their hearts. He knows how likely they are to quickly to forget how much they've been given. Joshua says, hey man, that house you're living in, you didn't build that, did you? That vineyard that you like, you didn't plant that. That nice city that you live in, you didn't build that. God gave, gave you all of that. When God said he was giving you a land flowing with milk and honey, he meant it was an ongoing gift year after year. Right? The land would continually provide for you. God had a plan. His blessings were more than just victory and war. He gave them life. He gave them a home. He gave them a place to grow old and raise families. That is what their God did for them. And now, now that they've been reminded of this great bounty, this great gift God has given them, now Joshua is going to remind them of their role, what they are required to do, like their end of the deal. And like we said many times, this all started with this covenant with Abraham. Because Abraham trusted in God, he had faith, God gave his descendants this promised land. And he said, your, your, your descendants would become as numerous as the sky. But that covenant required trust. It required relationship. And again, Joshua is going to be very specific about their role. And as we read his words, and I love what we're about to read here, notice he's forcing them to make a choice. There is no middle ground. Like this church. There's a right side, there's a left side. No one sits in the center, right? There is no middle ground. You got one side or the other, right? Can't do a little column A and column B. You got to pick one. Let's read this. Joshua 24, verses 14 to 15. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. I love this. This is one of the best Bible verses in the whole Bible. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So what Joshua does, he puts forth two very specific options. Were they vague in any way? The point is no one go, well, I didn't know what he meant, so I'm just going to kind of do a little both. That is not what is allowed to happen here, right? This is an ongoing issue also. You One would think because of all God did for them, this would be a no-brainer. Everyone would be of one mind, but there's clearly some doubt in Joshua's mind because he says, throw away the gods of your ancestors. If they had already thrown away all those idols, he wouldn't have to say that. It would have been a foregone conclusion. But because they still struggle, because some of them still hold on to foreign gods, it needs to be addressed time and time again. Again, I've said this before, it's going to seem like overkill, but Joshua and the God are trying to save them from themselves. God has a higher purpose. He wasn't just thinking of the Israelites, he was thinking of the entire world. The Israelites were part of God's plan. They were the start of God's plan to save the world. The Messiah Jesus would come through them and he would be for all. So it's important not just for their sake, but for ours as well, that they stay close to God. You know, and as we read this, you might think we're different, but we're not. We may not have physical gods or wooden idols that we worship, but we still very much practice idolatry today. Today, even like in Jesus' time, money. Money is a huge idol, probably the most common one. And money is dangerous because it changes how we see the world. 
instead of directing us to look at the world the way God wants us to, we look at it ways to please ourselves, to get what we want. We get this car, this bank, much, much in our bank account, whatever. We're going to get happy, and that's not where happiness comes from. Happiness comes from having a purpose, having faith, having a foundation of faith. Being close to God gives you purpose. It also answers the question is why you're here and what you should do with your life. Knowing God also answers the next big question, which is going to come up for all of us at some point, and that is what happens when you die. Money can't answer that question for you. I've worked in the ER for a number of years. I can guarantee that is not it. Wooden idols can't tell you what happens when you die, but God can. His son Jesus died for us. He rose again. He died so we wouldn't have to. Because of Jesus, we know we have a place in heaven. So as we read and we study these verses in the book of Joshua, what we're seeing in the big picture is God laying the foundation for the world to trust in him and trust in him alone. He's He's telling the world to get rid of idols. He's doing that because they don't work. They don't. He is the only God. He can help us. And so now that Joshua, he's laid out the role for the Israelites, this, this is their response, right? This is what they say right back, and it's verses 16 to 18. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey among, and among all the nations through which we traveled. And, then, and the Lord drove out all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in this land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. So the people appear to get it, right? They repeat right back everything Joshua said. Shows they understand. They see the big picture. They see their role. And their words are very encouraging. But Joshua is not a fool. He's not going to be swayed easily by their words. Their words demand action, and they have to take real steps today. And Joshua knows, even though they're making these big, sweeping declarative statements, he knows they're not there yet. Let's read verses 22 to 23, and you're going to see what I mean. Joshua 24, 22 to 23. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Look what he says in verse 23. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, uh, to the Lord, the God of Israel. So what did we just read? Joshua tells them again, throw away the gods among you. The people at that moment, and if I could, it would be okay, I'd pick this up and slam it down. They still have idols among them in their possession. While they're making these bold statements, we belong to God, he's our God. They still have statues, idols to Baal, Astarte, um, Asherah, all that stuff. Their mouths say one thing while their hearts are still wavering. Now, maybe not all of the Israelites did this, but enough of them did it for Joshua to their leader to say once again, get rid of it, all of it. So then the people respond in verses 24 to 26. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he affirmed, reaffirmed for them the decrees and the laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law, the book of, the law of God. 
Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. Right? So the people, they heard Joshua, they heard him, they heard him be called out again publicly, and they make this public de- declaration that we will serve God. We're going to get rid of all the idols. Right? It was fantastic, ex- excellent. Joshua reaffirms the laws of decrees. Then it says he recorded all these things in the book of the law. Do you guys know what that is? It's your Bible. It's your Old Testament. You're reading what Joshua wrote down. I think that's just cool. I just love that. Now, as we begin to finish, there's really there's two points that we need to focus on from today. Number one, following God is a continual choice. It is. And number two, that choice comes with a cost. So let's talk about number one first. Following God is not a one-time decision. I wish I could tell you that it was, but it's not. It's anything but, but that. To follow God means day in and day out, you have a variety of other options. Other th- lots of other things you can do. Big things, small things. And in that, you still choose to follow God. All right? Within those choices or paths, you specifically choose God's path. Now, here's an example. Let's get real with that. Let's say we all, we all roughly know what Jesus taught. This isn't a test, but if we picked, you know I mean? You could get close, right? His big stuff. People should be able to take a map of your life. Not one day, not one hour, your entire life. Let's say your life is over here, your map. Here's the rest of the world that doesn't believe. They should be able to look at your life and say, oh yeah, Jesus taught that. Oh yeah, Jesus taught that. I see that. They should see his fingerprints all over your life. If the map of your life looks the exact same as everybody else, then you don't actually follow Jesus, do you? You mean you may say you do with your mouth, but you don't. That's what staying on mission is about. Throughout your life, ups and downs, and we all have good days, we have bad days, and things. you follow Jesus. Not perfectly, but you follow him, and it's clear. And people can, you should be able to see that. Again, people should be able to look and go, oh, gee, yeah, he said that, he said that, he said that. It's a continual process. And the second point that we need to consider is that Jesus told his followers, that if you follow me, you have to count the cost. You have to understand what that means. It means the decisions that you make aren't necessarily going to make you richer if you follow me. It's not. It's not going to help your bank account or your net worth. To follow me means you're going to have to forgive people when it is really, really hard to do. When nobody else is going to forgive, I want you to do that. When nobody else is going to be generous, I want you to do that. When no one else thinks this person is worthy of love and forgetting, that's you. When the world says that all this stuff, this sinful behavior is good, it's normal, it's fine, we say, no, it's not. It's not okay for my, me, it's not okay for you. It's not okay for our politicians. It's not okay. Sin is the whole reason Jesus came into this world. And he calls us out of our sinful lives to be better people. And to live that life, we also have to encourage others to do the same. But it is worth it. It's so worth it to leave a sinful life behind and to realize that you are saved, to be freed from sin. So tonight as we finish, let's say a unique prayer together. Let's say a prayer and let's let God know that we choose him. We have choices in this life, lots of choices, but we still choose him. Let's also ask him to help us to remain strong, to help us count the cost, and no matter what happens up and down, he is our God, and we will follow him. So let's bow our heads and let's pray together.
Father, we begin our prayer tonight by offering our thanks for everything that you have done for each one of us. We are truly a blessed people. We thank you for the hard work of Joshua and the Israelites, that we could learn from their mistakes and we can learn from their faith. Father, we also declare tonight that we choose you. It's our choice, and it's our continual choice throughout our lives. And we say over and over again that we choose you. You are our God, and we are your people. Father, we also ask that you help us count the cost. Help us to understand that following you comes with hardship. But we also understand that this world is sinful because of us, and that you are working in this world to save us and to make this world a better place. Because of that, Father, we also ask that you use each one of us in your plan for this world. Use us to expand your kingdom. Use us to reach people who don't know you or your son. Father, once again, we thank you for this life that you've given each one of us, and you have blessed us in so many ways. We thank you for the church. We thank you for your teachings. Most of all, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, and we follow him. And in his name we ask all these things. Amen.